You can turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 28 and 29. So do hear now the Word as it was intended to come to us, flawless from the very heart of God. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask now that your word that stands forever would become loud and clear in our hearts and minds this afternoon. Lord, there are a thousand uh, adversaries to try to keep this word from implanting deep in our hearts. And we know that by one move on the cross, you slayed them all and they have no longer any authority. And so we ask now, Lord, that you would remove all of those distractions, all of those adversaries, and your word would sink deeply into our hearts, that we would be admonished where we needed to be admonished, we need to be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, and that we might be more like Christ, putting on the new and putting off the old. We know that that's your intent for us, that your will for us is to be sanctified, and we ask that you would do so or, or progress us down that path more today by this text. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> well, a couple of weeks ago, what we looked at was verses 25, 26, and 27. And that was essentially a New Testament exposition of the sixth commandment about anger in the New Testament, but the sixth commandment coming to us from Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5 is about murder. And we saw that the connection to both of those. This week, what we're gonna be looking at in these two verses are the eighth and ninth commandments. And then following later will be the seventh and the 10th. Eventually what we'll do is we'll hit all in the second table of the law. When I say second table of the law, those are all the 10 commandments that are horizontal, that relate to other people. The first four are vertical. First table of the law relate to God. Now, what Paul's dealing with here in this second half of the book of Ephesians is how we progress in sanctification, how we grow in faithfulness. And in giving plain instruction on maturing spiritually, Paul can do no better than what has already been written. What's already been written by God in the Old Testament, Paul's not improving on that in any way. He's merely just re-giving it. And Christian maturity is essentially joyfully keeping the 10 commandments in all of their aspects. Now, now that phrase, that sentence that just got spoken is not regularly heard or popularly grasped in modern evangelicalism in the United States. Now, why is that? It's in a sense that we believe that what we've done is transcended the Ten Commandments. We've risen above that. We've moved beyond those things. So when they get moved out of the courthouses in the United States, we're like, ah, who cares? We're not really about those anyways. Well, there's some 
errant thinking that goes along with that. See, we, we say things like, well, what we're after now is a relationship, not a religion. What, we, what we're doing is not a list of rules to keep. Now, in a sense, those two things are true. But what's actually being communicated to hearers when we say those two things, what's really being communicated is Jesus doesn't care what you do as long as you feel warmly towards him sometimes. That's what we're really communicating. But what did Jesus actually say about the Old Testament law? Did he ever speak toward? He did. His first big sermon, he goes at it right from the jump. Matthew chapter five, verses 17 and through 19, Jesus says, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then you get this heavy word. Whoever then annuls or nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He did not come to make the law pass away. And those who are great in the kingdom of heaven keep the law of God. Now, what did Jesus, when he had to put this into practice later on in the book of Matthew and in Mark and Luke to record the same story with the rich young ruler. What did he do when that man runs up on him and says, how do I go to heaven? That's an evangelism scenario that I would love to have happen to me. That's never happened to me once in my life. Pastor, how do I go to heaven? Well, I, I have the answer to that. I don't have answers to a lot of things. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, believe in me. He doesn't say, I am the Messiah, the one who's been prophesied from to come. I'm the Deuteronomy 18 prophet. I'm the second Samuel chapter seven promise of the kingly throne of David. He doesn't say any of that. He says, why don't you keep the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth and ninth commandments? And the guy goes, I have. Now, why would Jesus use the law in evangelism? Why should we? Because it reveals God's character it reveals God's standard and it proves that we don't meet it and thus need a savior. And that's what this rich young ruler missed. He was like, oh, I have kept all those things. There's gotta be something more. Instead of going, oh, if that's what it takes, I'll never get in. That's the use of the law in evangelism. But we believe at times post-justification, so after we've been saved, after we've understood the gospel of Jesus having died on the cross for your sins in your place to pay your price and faith in him is how we receive the unending eternal love of God, we believe that we have no use for the 10 commandments after that moment. Let me just give you an example of that, how it's played out. So years ago, my wife and I lived at a youth camp and my job was to hire counselors and horse wranglers and kitchen staff and all that stuff. So I'd go around to colleges all during the school year and just set up a booth and recruit people, you know, use contacts and links and different things like that. So we'd hire uh, almost 200 or so, uh, mostly college kids, but some older high school kids. And I got the idea one summer, I wanna know what these young people who have signed up to come and work at a camp all summer long, make no money and work 18 hour days and have less than a day off. 
That's a pretty big commitment. That's signing up for a lot. Uh, that seems to be a pretty uh, die to yourself decision. What do they know about the Bible? So I wrote up a survey and it wasn't like theology. It wasn't like tricky stuff. It was just basic Bible content. Sodom and Gomorrah were dot, 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 A, B, C, D. Pick one. And then I, I did uh, John three sixteen, but left a lot of blanks. So it's for blank, so blank, the blank. Like I just left all these blanks and tried to make it as hard as I could. And then the last question on the survey was, write out the 10 commandments. And every single one of them got John three sixteen correctly. Some of them had a little King James English in there, depending on what background they came from, but they all got it right. They all got that. But out of the, the almost 200 college students and older high school kids, none of them got all 10 commandments, none. And they signed up to die to themselves and go serve Christ at this camp. None of them. I was blown away by that. Some of them were just like, I know there's 10. So they started making up ones because they ran out of ideas. And, they, and then they would put question marks and you could tell they started feeling embarrassed at the end. And that wasn't the point. The point wasn't to embarrass them. The point was to understand if I'm supposed to shepherd these young people, I need to know where they're at. But what we've done is we get saved and then we just punt the 10 commandments as if they don't matter. Yet the apostle Paul turns to them immediately after he's done giving theology, he goes to them immediately when he's talking about putting off the old man and putting on the new. That's where he goes, right to him. Turning then to our text now, now that we're set up to understand why Paul's doing this, does it matter? He's going to talk about keeping the eighth and the ninth commandment. And in our day, uh, though the, the absence of keeping those two is greatly felt. You shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness. See, commandment number eight keeps communism and the welfare state at bay. And commandment number nine keeps true and wholesome speech in public areas. And then let alone in the church, how should those two things be manifesting themselves? Uh, we'll, we'll see. Verse 28, we're gonna look at mature work. Verse 29, we're gonna look at mature speech. So look at me, look with me at verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. Remember who Paul's talking to. He's talking to a bunch of former pagans, not good guys who just lived in a civilized society. We're talking about idolatrous, rank pagans, people who had sexual aberrations as a part of worship, Pe people who they, they stole constantly. That was a way of life. That's who he's talking to. Hey, when I uh, read missionary biographies, I'm always struck by, especially the front lines ones, struck by just the thieving that they discover when they go there, that they're constantly stealing from each other, stealing from the missionary. And then you look at when just basic common sense leaves a location, what goes through the roof? Theft. I mean, go to, go to any major liberal run city today and what's their biggest problem? Th theft. In, in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, they can't even keep a Nike store open and that's where Nike headquarters are because of the thievery. You say, we're not gonna prosecute anybody over $900. So they go in and steal $900. I 
thievery, it just, it's just in us. And whether it's, it's changed and we get sophisticated at different things, we steal ideas, we plagiarize. When downloading music was stealing, we did that. I mean, we just, we steal in our heart. We, we do this. Unregenerate hearts steal wantonly. And what is stealing? It's desiring and taking what is not rightly yours. It's a refusal to go through the God-ordained means of appropriating wealth or possessions. A refusal to go through the God-ordained means. And what are the God-ordained means of appropriating wealth or possessions? Work. That's what it is. See, this is the eighth commandment. Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. And then the Reformed Baptist Catechism says in question number 79, what is in the eighth commandment? What's required? What's required is the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. And then question 80 says, what is forbidden in the eighth commandment? Whatsoever does or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth or outward estate. See, when you read the the eighth commandment and actually understand it, and then you get to verse 28 here, God has designed for you to have and keep possessions. Otherwise, this commandment makes no sense. If he didn't, then it would make no sense. So here's what you gotta do. You gotta shut down and not let Christian hippies convince you that Jesus was a socialist because he wasn't. If private property isn't biblical, then the eighth commandment is nonsense. It makes no sense. It's gotta be deleted. We don't oppose communism or socialism because it's stupid and doesn't work, although that's true. We oppose it because God has condemned it in the eighth commandment. I want my neighbor to have the opportunity to procure and maintain wealth in a moral way, even if it's more wealth than I have. And why is that? Because God determines wealth as he pleases. 1 Samuel 2, verse 7, the Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. You know who said that? Hannah the ostracized second wife of an ancient civilization. That's who said that. See, the Bible is full of wealthy and poor servants of God. Just compare Mary Magdalene to Job. Job has everything that anybody could ever want. He's the wealthiest man in the East. Mary Magdalene has nothing except for seven demons at one point that they get cast out and she still has no possessions. So God is seemingly okay with that. Sometimes, what biblical wisdom is as we get here to verse 28, it's just stop it. He just says, steal no longer. You used to procure possessions and wealth by stealing. Stop doing that. Stop getting those things by those means. And yet each cease and desist order that comes to us in the scriptures contains a go and do instead order. It's not just a stop, it's a go and do instead. Each command has a forbidding and a requiring element. That's why catechisms are helpful because it talks about what does this commandment forbid? What does it require? And sometimes we only think about it as what it forbids. Look at the rest of the verse. So he says, steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good. Think about just 
baby Christians who have no Judeo-Christian background, no uh, uh, constitution, no laws, no, no ex- expectation of law and order and all that kind of stuff. You, you go, okay, whoa, so I can't steal anymore. How do I get stuff? How do I eat? How do I put clothes on my back? And the answer is work. You work to lawfully procure possessions. Christians, according to this, should be the hardest working people in any civilization. The scriptures have no room for the lazy person who insists on being handed things because God made us to work. See, a lot of times what we think is like, man, work, I can't wait to get heaven. Heaven's just gonna be endless leisure because that's what the Garden of Eden was. No, it wasn't. Genesis 2, verse 15, then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? Cultivate it and keep it. Work is a divinely instituted reality before the fall of man. Only after the fall does it become wearisome. Genesis 3, 19, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken, you are dust and to dust you shall return. You're gonna, it's gonna be sweaty and hard and miserable and the ground's gonna resist you because of sin. Yet we still work even in a fallen world because work is still a good thing. Just like we still get married in a fallen world because marriage is still a good thing that existed before the fall. Works in Proverbs 14, 23, in all labor, in all work, there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. And we work because God works. Jesus said in John 5, or rather 5, 17, but he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. If we aren't imitating Christ, we aren't imitating the father, then what are we doing? If they work, we work. Until now in that verse means even still now. What's interesting when you, when you look at and you study other religions, even the ones that exist now and the ones that were uh, rooted in kind of the ancient world or the first century world, all pagan gods, it's almost like they've reached the top. And so now what they do is, is they just are pictured in endless leisure. All they do is get, get served by underlings and they have endless leisure. They just sit around and loaf around until you do something that makes them mad. Then they get up and throw lightning bolts. But then they go back to just loafing around and doing endless leisure. God's never pictured like that. He rests on the seventh day, but it's not rest like we rest because the Psalm says that God doesn't rest or sleep or slumber. That, that, that seventh day rest has a much bigger theological significance. I don't have time to get into today, but God's pictured as doing things, productively doing things. The first guy, well, not the, fir- the first guy in the semi-modern era to bring that thought back around was Martin Luther in the 1500s. Because before the 1500s, what was happening in the Western world was uh, a denigration of work that wasn't done by clergy. So essentially the the Roman Catholic church was telling you, okay, your work is dirty and gross and it's only redeeming quality is that it makes money that you can give to us as the clergy. Other than that, it has no value. It doesn't do anything. But Martin Luther comes with not only justification by faith, with a whole slew of other biblical truths. One of them has become known as the Protestant work ethic. Have you ever heard of that? The Protestant work ethic? That's That's not a joke. That, that your work matters, even if what you're doing is not what I do. 
See, what was the thought of the day, not even just the thought, but the culture and the belief was that the clergy, the priests, what they do matters. What you do doesn't matter unless you can contribute to them. But then Luther reads the scripture and goes, no, actually, everybody's work matters. He brings in this doctrine of vocation, that you are made to work and what you do does indeed glorify God in and of itself, along with supporting missions, the great commission, the great commandment. Colossians 3, 17 would be a verse we would look to that. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Brothers and sisters, your work matters to God and it has dignity. And you don't get told that. And if I don't tell it to you, nobody else is gonna tell it to you. Your work has dignity in and of itself. And I look around the room and I just start thinking about all the jobs I know that you have. It matters. Even if it's not this at a pulpit, it has dignity. It has significance. You glorify God in your job. You're participating in the Genesis 127 dominion mandate by working. You're subduing the earth. Away with the thought that your job doesn't matter unless you do what I do. That's just not biblical. That's not what Paul's talking about here at all. Whether, it's, whether your job is changing diapers or changing oil filters or changing logistical ideas, it all matters. Work is highly esteemed in the Christian world. If you look at a place like 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, make it your ambition. Make it your ambition. Strive for this. Be ambitious towards this. Towards what? To lead a quiet life, attend to your own business and work with your hands. Make it your ambition to do that as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And then you get to a place where it's the opposite of that. So there's a, a, a forbidden and required. What, that's what's required is make it your ambition to work with your hands. But what's forbidden in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even we are with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. That wasn't John Smith in Jamestown coming up with that on his own. You know James, you, you know Jamestown, you know John Smith? We need to pause here and do a history lesson. He's not from the Pocahontas movie from Disney. Don't, don't go off of that. He was a lot better man. He didn't come up with that. He was just reading 2 Thessalonians 3.10 and saying, hey, you know what? Our new little society here ain't gonna work if you don't work. So you don't get to eat unless you work. So these rich aristocrats, they're gonna have to work. And that's how the, the civilization survives the winter. So the Christian worldview has always supported work and there is a divine purpose of work. Look at the rest of verse 28. So that he will have something to share with one who has need. So that commandment, you shall not steal, it means I, am, I have a, a divine right to possessions and wealth and I need to make sure that my neighbor has a divine right to possessions and wealth, but I don't have a selfish right as sovereignty over my possessions and my wealth. It's all still God's. And what I'm not doing is procuring for myself at the expense of my brother. Jesus says, if somebody asks for your jacket, you give him the shirt off your back also. You, you give above and beyond. Nothing we own is actually ours. First Corinthians 4, 7, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? 
And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? See, that's the thing about tithing or giving. It was given to you first. What you're engaged in is a discipline of submitting to God. You handed this to me. I like it. I want it. But you and your loving kindness in fathering me and asking me to give some of it back because it's all from you anyways. Your end goal in working is not to have a good life yourself. Your life is for Christ. And since he isn't physically here, then your life is for others. Look at the Shunammite woman, 2 Kings 4, 8 through 10, especially a, this is a woman who has wealth in the, in the era of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha. She could have been totally internalized, but then what does she do? Verse eight, now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunam. And there was a prominent woman and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. That's, you're feeding this prophet. He doesn't, ha he doesn't have farm. He doesn't make his own food. So that's, that's great. But she's like, I can do more than that. Verse nine, she said to her husband, behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a bed up here for him and a table and a chair and a lampstand. And it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. Ha, let me just give away more of my wealth. Let me just make a room for this guy and furnish it so that he can be there. You have another example of Chloe, 1 Corinthians 1, 11. Paul says, if I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people. Now, this is in a bigger context of talking about problems in the church, but Chloe's people, he calls that people that because Chloe was a wealthy woman who had a house big enough for the church to meet in. So she says, come and use all my stuff. Come and get in here with us. And then you have the very words of Jesus, Matthew 25, 34 and following. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. This idea that we can take the eighth commandment, the divine right of ownership, and then serve ourselves with it is entirely unbiblical. Yes, I need to make sure that my neighbor has the right to own property and to keep it to himself, to herself. But I'm not to be Scrooge about it. I'm not to be a hoarder about it. I'm to share. I'm so, I, that this command that I have the right to do this gives me the opportunity to think of others. And so does the next commandment in verse 29, which is an expansion of the ninth commandment. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. See, this is another plain command, just like the beginning of verse 28, to stop sinning. Just stop doing that. Just plain. And he uses that word unwholesome. Now in the Greek, that's the word sapros, S-A-P-R-O-S. 
It's a bad or unwholesome to the extent of being harmful. Also could be translated as putrid or rotten. If you need a mental image, just think of the University of Tennessee orange. Just putrid, rotten, just bitter over yesterday. But the word sapros, that's what that means. And it's used elsewhere in the New Testament exclusively by Jesus. He uses this word. Paul uses it here, but then the only other time it's used is by Jesus. And he uses it in a place like this, Matthew 7, 17 through 18. So every good tree bears good fruit and every sapros tree, bad tree, bears sapros fruit, bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear, produce sapros, unwholesome, rotten fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Another place that he uses it is in the uh, image of the dragnet, Matthew 13, 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the sapros, the bad, they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And at that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you have this putridness. So when you read, when you read that verse, verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. What does the New Testament mean by unwholesome? If you take in the context, the way that word is used in the scriptures, that word unwholesome means speech fitting for the spiritually dead. It means language that would accompany the wicked. It means the vocabulary of the condemned. That's what unwholesome means. Now we know the damage that can be done by words. We all understand that. We all know the adage that kids say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. It's not true. We all know that. And James 3, 5, and 6 says so. So the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire to the very world of iniquity, the very world, universe of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Do we take our mouths seriously enough? According to James, see, now what you might be expecting right now is a list of prohibitive words, and I ain't gonna give you that because a Pharisee wants a list. Those with circumcised hearts and bowed knees to God, they pursue complete surrender. So you don't need a list. The fact is, all of you over the age of 15, we'll say, know exactly what an unbelieving world person, worldly person speaks like. You know exactly what they speak like. Yet the foolishness of pop Christianity says, we can't win the world unless we talk like the world. So we get preachers who curse in sermons and we get Christian mom groups that sound like construction sites, all claiming Christian freedom and distorting Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 22, when he says, I become all things to all people. That doesn't mean I become a sinner. I become sinful. I engage in things that Christ died for to win people. It doesn't mean that, not even the slightest. Yeah, even today, even today, as decrepit as our society is now, we still have the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, 
that says certain words and certain language is not permissible to be heard publicly. And we're gonna rank levels of words that can be heard by age groups, G and PG and PG-13 and R and the radio and music, all those things. In our, the general public, what does it say about the church if we have lower standards than them? A bureaucratic institution staffed by pagans. What, if we're lower than that, what are we doing? The first time I was on staff at a church, it was a big church, a big youth group, like 100, more than 100 kids, 150, almost 200 kids, had all these college students that would help out and lead the small groups. And I'm there and the first thing I'm at, the first event, I just hear these college leaders just, I mean, they sound like 1940s sailors. And so I go and ask that I'm just the junior high guy. I'm the lowest man on the totem pole barely not an intern. And I just say, hey, I don't know if you were there around, but I heard this and I heard that. And he goes, oh, well, you know, sometimes you just need to do that. You know, sometimes that's just what is merited. You know, you just, you just need to get the force of the moment, you know, to really kind of communicate. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> we're, we're a church? And then I had lunch with the senior pastor and listened to him talking. I was like, oh, this is where he learned it. No, oh, this is why it's okay. Yet, what was it about Jesus's speech that made him so compelling? That whole nonsense of we need to sound like the world to win the world. What Jesus, we could say, he, he won the world, right? He captivated the people. Hordes of people are coming to listen to him speak. How was his speech described? When the Pharisees sent out a delegation of these kind of temple officers to go and arrest him and pull him back. They come back empty-handed and they're asked about it. John 7, 46, the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. We've never heard anybody talk like this at all. This is completely foreign speech to us. And they're so stunned, they can't even do their jobs. So we don't need to speak like the world to win the world. Christ's otherworldly speech is what stunned people into listening. See, what you say, how you speak, reveals your character. Jesus using that word sapros again in verse Matthew 12, 33 and following, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree sapros, that unwholesome word from uh, Ephesians, and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word, how many? Every careless word that people speak, they shall give accounting for it in the day of judgment. By your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Quote Jesus Christ. So that same word, bad, sapros, is used here is for unwholesome in Ephesians 4, 29. But what Jesus is saying is what comes out of you reveals what's inside of you, because the only thing that can come out is what's in. If it's in, then it comes out. It can't, if you didn't put it in, then it won't come out. 
But wait, is Jesus saying salvation is gonna be by works? That's what it sounds like at the end of verse 37. No, really what Jesus is doing, he's just condensing down an entire half chapter of what his half brother said, James, in James 2, saying that your works reveal your heart. Your actions reveal what's actually in you. Is your heart stone or is your heart flesh? We'll be able to tell, at least have a really good idea by what you say, by how you speak. So what do we do instead? If that's what's forbidden, what do we do instead? We practice edification, verse 29. Don't have an wholesome speech, but only such a word as is good for edification and according to the need of the moment. Our speech is to be two things, good, edifying, and timely. Good and timely. Proverbs 25, 11 speaks to this. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover, speaker to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is the faithful messenger who sends him for he refreshes the soul of his master. It's Proverbs 23. A man has joy in an apt answer. How delightful is a timely word. That's what Paul's after. Edifying and timely words. How do we speak in any other manner? Only the wisdom of the world would say, ah, sometimes you need to speak in a way that's not edifying. Ah, sometimes you don't need to even account for your circumstances, who's around you, who the person is, who you are, how much of the Bible, you know, nah, just say it, just let it rip. That's being real. I mean, I'm not going to be fake. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to just be posing out here. I'm going to be authentic. I just be, hey, I'm just being real. Now, one time I was telling this older guy, older than me, and I was in college. This older, he, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but he had a son that was playing, uh, uh, high school football, and we were talking about football and him playing and then me playing. And I told him a story. I was like, man, this one time in junior high and eighth grade, I was standing on the sidelines and I was bragging to this kid who never gets to play about how good of a game I was having. I was just telling him all the touchdowns and the tackles and all this stuff. And come to find out my dad was sitting right behind me that whole time. And he sent my brother and sister home with my mom. And then he was there waiting for me after the game. And he ripped me up and down all the way home about being arrogant and proud and all this stuff. And so I'm telling this guy the story about it to him talking about his son. And, and then he just goes, well, I don't know if your dad was really in the right spot there because, you know, you need some of that swagger and some of that, you know, that kind of helps you. And I mean, I was just, totally stunned. This guy claimed to be a believer and I was just totally stunned by that response. And then come to find out him, him discipling his son like that led to a massive crash and burn for that kid. Tragic crash and burn. But all my dad was doing was just following this text. What I was saying in eighth grade on the sidelines wasn't good for edification. Wasn't building anybody up, I was puffing me up. And it wasn't fitting for the moment because that poor kid never saw the field. It was just salt in his wounds. And this is just a little eighth grade context for it. But the language of a mature believer walking in the new self in Christ, it builds others up and it fits the moment. 
how we speak. Calvin said that pastors need to have two voices, one that calls in sheep and one that wards off wolves. And you need to know when to use each voice. That's the discipline, the, the time and the fitting. There's time for bluntness with a brother or sister in Christ. Proverbs 27, five, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So there is a right time for bluntness with brothers and sisters. There's also a right time for softness with brothers and sisters. First Thessalonians 5, 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, but what do you do with the faint-hearted? You encourage them. What do you do with the weak? You help them. And then you're patient with all of them. So we are edifying and timely. A Christian, a mature Christian, reads the room, measures his words, and knows his brother. Because speech has a divine purpose here at the end of verse 29. So that it will give grace to those who hear. See, just as not stealing has a divine purpose, not having unwholesome speech has a divine purpose, and that's to give grace. See, your speech is a stewardship just like your wealth. It's a resource that you have to steward that you are gonna give an account for. How do you use it? Proverbs 12, 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. See, your speech will either glorify God and give grace to others, or it won't. There is no in-between. To give grace in your speaking is to be like Christ. Verse 22 of Luke 4, and all who were speaking well of Jesus and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Just that, isn't that an image that Luke gives us there? The gracious words. It's just like honey is dripping out of his mouth, but in that same chapter, they're about to try to kill him. Gracious words doesn't mean you win friends and overcome people. It does mean that his words, uh, or does not mean that his words were exclusively soft or non-threatening. It does mean that his words were always dripping with saving grace. Everything he said was meant to explain the gospel further, model the gospel further. Even his cutting words were laced with grace that his hardened hearers might know how to be saved from the wrath to come. See, our wholesome words fuel evangelism. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. See, as we go from verse 25 down, when Paul gets into specific things, you know, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, laying down the tackling dummies, pulling them in three feet wide. So you have to run, you have to square up on sin. When he gets to verse 25, you can't do this, having grace in your speech, giving grace as you speak wholesome words, if you're imbibing falsehood, verse 25. You can't have grace-soaked speech in verses 26 and 27 if you are given to uncontrolled anger. You can't have grace-laden speech if your life doesn't model it because you keep stealing from people and ripping them off. See, we put salt on everything that we eat to flavor it. That's why Paul in Colossians 4 gives that image of seasoning your speech with grace. 
the grace of God. We put grace of God on everything we say because it's for his glory. It's for the edification of our neighbor. It's for our good. And it's for the conversion of the lost. That's why we speak in the ways that we speak. So in conclusion, the law of God, what we don't need to see here is as we go through this, we're gonna keep going. If you look at verses 30, 31, and 32, and then you get to verse five, one, two, three. I mean, it's just gonna be more things, just obvious, not hard to interpret things. What we can't do is give ourselves to legalism. You know the difference between legalism and obedience? It's real clear. And it's real clear in verses 28 and 29. Legalistically, to not steal means I'm not gonna touch your stuff, but I'm also never gonna share my stuff. I only care about is me. I'm not gonna say any bad words, but I'm also never gonna say any good words. That's legalism. Legalism looks out for number one. In any manifestation that you see it, whether we're measuring women's skirts or, or we're talking about, oh, I can't believe you went to that movie or you touched that thing or you went that place. That's all about me. But faithfulness, obedience is all about God and others. Paul says, don't steal because that dishonors God and you have nothing to give to your neighbor in need. He says, don't let unwholesome words come out of your mouth because that dishonors God and you're worthless to your brothers and sisters who need edification and who need grace. And you're useless in evangelism. So faithfulness and obedience is not the same as legalism. Taking the moral law of God, which are summarized in the 10 commandments is not equal to legalism. Following those commandments is just glory to God and love of neighbor. All it is, is the first greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's all obedience is. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with glory of God and good of my neighbor. So we never put our hope of salvation in keeping God's moral law, never. It'll just kill us if we try to do that. Rather, we have a living hope because we have a living hope by a true and risen Christ, we can now joyfully keep his law out of gratitude and like the Gerasene demoniac, the reason we read that in Mark chapter five, did you see how he was described after? What is he before? He's running around screaming, naked, cutting himself, chaos. Everybody's horrified of him. His voice echoes through the tombs and is putting fear into the villagers. And then when he has that one little confrontation with Jesus, then how's he described? He's sitting down, he's fully clothed, and he's in his right mind. And then what does Jesus send him to go do? Go and speak to them. And you're qualified to do that now because you're no longer a menace to society like a thief in Ephesus. But you've been given a renewed self so you no longer speak unwholesomely. You no longer have the chaotic shriekings of demons you have the coherence of Christ because of the gospel in your life. So we're just like him. That's what we go and do also to the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the plain simplicity of the scriptures. None of these words were hard to understand. 
None of them were difficult to apprehend. But Lord, we know and we come to you in humility and hat in hand, knowing they are extremely difficult to apply. Lord, we have failed in so many ways, even the ways that we think that we, we haven't broken something as blatant as stealing. We know that we have. We know that we've stolen looks where we shouldn't have. We know that we've stolen uh, ideas. We know that we've uh, stolen praise that's due to you and we stole it for ourselves. So Lord, we are thieves. And we know that we haven't kept the ninth commandment about our speech and it being consistent with the truth. We've had unwholesome words spewing out of our mouths. And we've said things like, I have no idea where that came from, but we do know where it came from. We put it in. We're guilty of that. We thank you that you give a greater grace. We thank you that you don't have a running balance sheet of how faithful or obedient or unfaithful and disobedient we've been lately. Our minds, Father, you know, our minds are so given to that kind of thinking that that you do keep a running balance sheet of how well we are doing or not doing every single day and that you're looming over us with a, a waiting judgment, with a, with a cocked uh, stick to beat us. But well, that's exceedingly, you've showed us, exceedingly unbiblical. You poured out your entire wrath for sin on your son. He took all of it. There's none left for us. He paid it all. He didn't just pay some of it. Help us to remember that. Lord, when we see these plain commands that are easy to understand, hard to consistently do, keep us in a right mindset towards you and about you and who you are. So that as we, as we do stumble our way through these lives, we would not have a wrong or a twisted understanding of who you are. And Father, keep us from the ditch on the other side of the road also. That because you're not keeping a running ledger of our successes and failures, it doesn't mean that they are unimportant to you. It doesn't mean that we still won't give an account for every idle word spoken because we will. It will not be a, a heaven and hell, a condemnation or glory account, but it still will be a real account. So Father, help us to, to joyfully, eagerly police our minds and our mouths, our hands. Lord, may, may we be turned out to putting our hands to honest labor, that not only provides for ourselves and our loved ones, but for others. But may we also be putting our minds to policing our mouths. Lord, you, you called our tongues fires, the very world of iniquity that, that are, that's set on fire by hell. There couldn't be harsher language. Lord, help us to be more aware of our tongues. Help us to be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to become angry. Not so that we can please you and earn your favor, but so that we can glorify you because you've given us your favor. We want to glorify you and edify our neighbor. Help us to do so, weak as we may be. We ask this all humbly but confidently in Christ's name, amen.